Our guest today is Lisa Davis, and she is the wife of the late legendary singer-songwriter Mac Davis. And as the founder of Mac Davis Enterprises, she plays a crucial role in preserving and promoting her late husband's legacy for new generations. Now, her commitment to the art of songwriting is evident in her leadership of Song Painter, the Mac Davis Fund for the Art of Songwriting, an initiative dedicated to the growth and development of emerging songwriters. Now, as a songwriter himself, Mac Davis rivals the likes of Lennon and McCarthy, Simon and Garfunkel, and rightly so. He became famous as a songwriter and wrote the hit songs in the ghetto, Memories, and A Little Less Conversation, which were all recorded by the King Elvis Presley. Now, the list of notables who recorded his songs are people like Nancy Sinatra and B.J. Thomas and Perry Como, even Linda Anderson, that's just to name a few. But in 2010, Mac Davis co-wrote the song Time Flies with Rivers Kumo, which appeared on Weezer's Hurley album. And in 2013, he was part of the Los Angeles writing and producing team that created the hit Young Girls for Bruno Mars. Mac Davis also wrote and collaborated with the late Swedish DJ and music producer Avinci, pinning the song Addicted to You for Avinci's debut studio album, True. And they performed the song Black and Blue together at the Ultra Music Festival in Miami in 2013. By now, you know and you have to know that Mac Davis's songwriting and singing is legendary and we haven't even touched on his acting career. So without further ado, let's welcome the wife of Mac Davis, the lovely and incredible Lisa Davis to the show. Welcome. Thank you. It's nice to be here, Ward. Well, you know, I, I truly have to confess because I have been a huge Mac Davis fan for many, many years and still remember his songs and even watched his variety show that was on NBC when I was a kid. How did you two meet? Well, actually, I'd met his music before I met him. When I was 13 years old, I used to walk down West 210 Street in Fairview Park, Ohio, heading off to my freshman year in high school, singing at the top of my lungs with my books clasped across my chest, singing One Hell of a Woman. And then eight years later, I met him and fell in love with him. Well, my so eight years later, you met him. How did you come to meet Mac? It's not like what you think what I'm about to tell you, but it was at the Playboy Mansion in Los Angeles. And what happened was my sister and I were out in California with my brother for the summer. And uh, we were invited from, by some friends to come up for the Sunday buffet and movie. And I really was uncomfortable about going. I did not want to go. In fact, I wasn't planning to go. My sister was very, she was very excited to go. She was kept saying, please, 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 I can't go without you. And then someone said to me, you should go. No one can make you do anything you don't want to do, Lisa. I said, well, yeah, you're right. And they said, besides, you'll have bragging rights when you go back to college. I thought, yeah, okay, whatever. So, and, and also I was a college student on a budget putting myself through school. So a free dinner and free movie was very, very nice to think about. So we went and my sister and I walked in and we'd made our, we'd made our own dresses and they actually kind of looked alike. And I was 21, she was 20 and we walked in and we were immediately dubbed the Sunshine Sisters. And uh, we were so, we were so naive, but we sat down and we were having a nice buffet and I turned and I saw Mac come in to the buffet line behind me and I just, so he took my breath away. He was so beautiful. It was uh, June of 1979. And I grabbed my sister's arm and I said, Kurt, Kurt, look, that's the most beautiful man I've ever laid the eyes on. And she said, where, where, where? She had no idea who I was talking about. To me, he was a beam of light. Anyways, Hefner actually introduced us. And when he came over to the table with Mac, he looked down at me and he said, Lisa, this is Mac Davis. Mac Davis, this is Lisa. And Mac reached over and took my hand and he said, I'm sorry, I didn't catch your last name. Ugh. Anyways, I don't know how I sat down. I sat through the rest of that Rocky film. It was one of the Rockies. And um, when the movie was over, I was waiting for a car to come get me and take me home because my sister was going to stay and the cab was coming and, and he was standing behind me. And as I finished my conversation, I turned around. I couldn't wait to look at him again. And the first thing he said to me was, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I came for dinner and a movie. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I came for dinner and a movie. Anyways, he walked me to the cab 
And I got in and he said, I really would like to see you again. May I have your number? And I gave him my number. And as I began to pull away, I thought, He's, he didn't write it down. He's not going to remember. And then all of a sudden, I saw him about to go into the door of the, of the Playboy Mansion. He turned around, came trotting back to the car, knocked on the window, and he said, tell me your number one more time. And I told it to him. And we drove away. And the next morning, I came back from my, my class because I was taking a, I was breaking up my core classes for nursing school. So I was, like I said, I was putting myself to school. And I came up the driveway, my brother's bicycle, and my brother was coming down the staircase and he said, Lisa, some guy named Mac has called you like five times since eight o'clock this morning. Anyways, he came and picked me up that night and we went to a movie, went to his home, had a wonderful evening. He was a perfect gentleman. Um, at 3.30, we were just talking and talking, and I, I realized it was how late it was. I said, oh, Mac, you've got to take me home. I've got to get up in the morning and go to school and ride my bike, ride my brother's bike seven miles each way. And because I didn't have money for that kind of thing. So as he took me home, and we we were sitting in the driveway talking. And then as I went to say goodnight, he said, you know, I'd love to kiss you, but I think I'm getting a cold. And I just grabbed him. I just reached over and grabbed him, pulled him in, and I gave him a kiss. I said, good night. And we've been together ever since. So well, was it love at first sight? For me, it was. I think I scared him. I did. did, he did I, did, I don't think he wanted to fall in love with me because he, you know, he'd been through some rough times, had a couple bad marriages and a uh, very public divorce a second time. And I don't think that he ever wanted to marry again. And he didn't see me coming. And that's what he used to tell me. And he wrote a song about it called Damn It Girl, I'm Falling in Love with You. You know, now it, it when he told you that uh, at the at the party, you know, what are you doing here? What were you doing at the Playboy Mansion? <laughs> I went for a free dinner and free movie, <laughs> and also because my sister wanted to go so badly, I would have. You know, looking back on it, thank God I did go. I would have never met him, and I almost didn't go. I really didn't almost go. It just shows you, you make decisions, and that was one. That was a good decision that I made to go that night. I think it was. Now, you and Mac married in 1983. How did he propose? Yeah. Well, it was Christmas of 81, and we had met in June of 79, and I had graduated from college, and we were together, and it was Christmas morning, and first thing, 8 o'clock in the morning, the, the, the doorbell rang, and I opened up the door, and there was his road manager dressed up as Santa Claus holding a brand-new bearded collie puppy, and I, we named him Tugboat, and he was this little puffball of fur, I'd never had a dog in my life. He had two dogs already, Rufus and Bono, but now I have my own little puppy. And that was so sweet. And then he gave me a, a car phone. And in those days, it wasn't the cell phones that we have now. If you saw someone with a car phone, they had those big long antennas that stuck out the back of the car, on the trunk, or the top of the car. So I got a car phone, which was really something. And then he gave me uh, round trip tickets to Tahiti for he and I to go to, to Tahiti together, which I was so excited. I thought it was done. I went off to go get coffee for the two of us and came back in the living room and he handed me a little note from the Christmas mouse telling me that he uh, was in the street waiting for me, had a gift for me, and that he wanted to spend forever with me. And I walked over to the tree and I had decorated the tree myself so I knew where every ornament was. And I'm looking and finally I find this little ball of folded up foil, held together with a piece of twine and a Band-Aid. I don't know why he chose a Band-Aid, but I opened it up and inside was a piece of fudge that he had shaped into a little heart. And in the center was a loose diamond and there was a note saying, will you please be mine forever and ever and ever. Well, he sounds like one romantic man. He was, he was. Every day he was romantic and he was fun and he was silly. One time I came home to a stuffed doll that he got from some lady that was selling him in the parking lot to raise money for some cancer thing. And he had her sitting on the toilet with a, with a, um, a recording underneath her skirt. And her name was Mrs. Magruder. And it was hysterical. I can't remember what all I said, but he did this whole little voice of Mrs. Magruder. I walked in and went, where is that coming from? And it was this doll. <laughs> that was who he was. Just stuff like that. Just silly. Well, was was there a special song that he would always sing to you at home? There were. There were several. He wrote Damn It Girl, but he also wrote My Bestest Friend, because I used to call him My Bestest Friend. And he wrote a song. He wrote a whole album called Midnight Crazy, but another song he wrote was It's the Quiet Times, because I used to say to him, it's the quiet times I love the best with you, when it was just the two of us and nobody else, and we would just be together. 
and he would be doing his crossword puzzles or writing a song and I would be reading a book or we would just be sitting and talking. You know, it's, I went back and, and re-listened to so many of his songs, you know, you know, of course, all of the hits, all of the songs that were recorded by other artists. And I came across one of the songs that I literally forgot about, which I could not believe because it was a, a, a great hit for Mac. And I came across It's Hard to Be Humble. And I, <laughs> I started laughing because the song is funny because he's, he's kind of poking fun at himself or the lifestyle of someone that's famous or a celebrity. But Mac really had a great sense of humor, didn't he? He did. One day, not, not long before his, he passed, I was walking by what I call his man cave and he was sitting in his chair with his guitar. And he said something to me that literally left me, I, I sat down on the floor on my bottom, just went down on, the, on my bottom, just laughing my head off. He just, he would do stuff like that. He would say things that would just like, where did you, where did you come up with that? You know, it was just, he was, he was wonderful. Was he quick, was he quick witted? Oh, beyond. Anyway, if, if, if you ask any of his friends at any point, his golfing buddies or whatever, he, he, would, he was so quick, so, so smart, wicked smart. He, was, he would say, I was the smartest person he knew. No, he was the smartest person I've ever known. He was, he was just absolutely a joy to speak with. He was refreshing. He was thoughtful and he was kind. Above all, he was kind. You know, when I when I I used to watch his variety show and and that was one of the things that I noticed about Mac was his sense of humor. But he was but you could tell how in touch he was with his audience. He was very endearing and like you said, you could see that kindness come out of him, which really comes out through a lot of his songs. It does. It does. Now, throughout his... No, no, go ahead, Lisa. No, he also... If you listen to his songs from Stop and Smell the Roses to I Believe in Music, he, there's a spirituality to every one of his songs. Um, like, in fact, when Gallery had the hit, hit on I Believe in Music, they changed one of the lyrics, the, the chorus. They did not want to invoke the name God. And Matt was really upset that they changed the, the lyric without telling him. And he actually thought momentarily about yanking, the, yanking it out of the rotation because it made him angry that they didn't ask. And the lyric was, um, lift your voices to the sky. God loves you when you sing. And they changed it to lift your voices to the sky. Tell me what you see. And it really made Mac mad. And then he looked at me and goes, besides, it doesn't rhyme. <laughs> so, so at his gravesite, I have a bench there. And I believe the music was his signature song and it was everything that he was about as a songwriter. But I made sure that it is forever known that it was not that lyric that they sang. It was lift your voices to the sky. God loves you when you sing. You know, I remember how I believe in music was just this monster hit. I mean, it, it reminds me of the time when Barry Manilow uh, had the song, I, I Write the Songs. And to hear that I believe in music, um, they were they were both. I mean, they were both monster hits. But boy, for Mac, I mean, I was actually surprised that that one ended up being his signature song. He ended every single show with that song for the his whole career. Every show he ever did, he ended with "I Believe in Music" because that was the epitome of what he who he was and what he believed. Well, you know, besides his music career, he also had an acting career. And and even up until he passed, wasn't he doing a lot of uh, voiceover acting as well? Yeah, he did. He had fun with that. He enjoyed, he enjoyed it all. He enjoyed all genres of just being creative. And there wasn't a day that didn't go by that he wasn't writing a song. There wasn't a day that didn't go by that he wasn't working on something like that. So he must have had a guitar literally just within arm's reach every day. Oh, it was in his lap. <laughs> well, through, you know, throughout his music and his acting career, were there any pivotal moments where you felt uh, especially proud of his accomplishments? Because there's many. There are, but one particular moment 
sticks in my mind. And it was when he was writing with Avicii, with Tim Berglund, and they did Miami Ultra. And he wrote a song actually with Cody, our son, uh, Black and Blue. And, but he also did um, Addicted to You, that he did, I'll explain that in a second. But he went up there on the stage and Alan Black was over there and Mac was there and he was up there with Avicii, with Tim. Our kids were in the audience and there were 60,000 in that audience, 60,000 people, just kumbaya. They were just the happiest crowd I've ever seen. I'd never seen a crowd like that before. And there were Noah and Cody watching their father and they, you know, they didn't get to grow up watching him perform. We were very careful about shielding him from limelight. We didn't want them to feel special. They never went to Disneyland with daddy. Daddy didn't go with us. They went with me because we wanted our kids to feel normal and grow up with values and not feel that they were entitled or special. They're special, but not entitled. But anyways, I remember just standing on the side of the stage watching from the wings and I could see Noah and Cody and they were up there, out there just putting their hands up in the air, go dad, go dad, go dad. And they were yuking each other and laughing and hugging. I'll never forget that. Well, how did the collaboration happen between Mac and Avicii? Well, Neil Jacobson um, uh, contacted Mac and told him and a couple other people. Anyways, he got... He wasn't sure he could write for EDM. And then our son, Cody, um, said to him, yeah, dad, let me show you. Went out in his little car, his little Prius, and put a blanket over his head and went out there and took one of Mac's song and sped it up and brought it and showed Mac what he could do. He took a waltz and made it into an EDM beat. 138 beats per minute, I think is what it is. Anyways, Mac suddenly realized he could do that. And then he went to Kim and Tim loved his stuff, so. Well, for Mac, was that was that something of a challenge? I mean, because that was that's a really different genre. It is. It was. But like he said, music is music is the universal language. He always he always said that you can write music in any form. I he, he had a joke with a friend of ours. He said I could write. He, he, the guy said to him on the golf course one day, John Philip Sousa was the greatest songwriter there ever was. And Mac looked at him and goes, No, he wasn't. He wrote marches. That's all he wrote were marches. He goes, I can write a march. And by the end of the 18 holes, he wrote a march. And our friend, Mark Tillinger, went and had it produced and finished it. And it's now the Leaper's Fork March here in Tennessee. <laughs> so Mac could write in any genre. He wrote with everyone. There wasn't anyone he wouldn't write with. He wrote with Buddy Guy at the end. He, you know, he wrote with Bruno Mars. He wrote with, with, with for Bruno Mars. He wrote with, um, um, oh my gosh, so many. It was well, just, I, he loved oh, with, with Rivers Cuomo from Weezer. You know, that is, it's, this is why I am so honored to be speaking with you and not just being a, a huge fan of Mac Davis. I want people to realize how big Mac Davis really is because, you know, when a lot of people do their history, you know, the Elvis thing always comes up. You know, yeah. he wrote In the Ghetto, he wrote Memories, A Little Less Conversation, which out of the three, that's my favorite, because I actually went back to listen and to listen to the two versions that Elvis did. There was the original version, then there was the mm -hmm. remix that was basically done, I guess, a few years ago. That's the one I like the best, because it's just mm -hmm. so alive, and it makes Elvis, well, sound like he is alive, and... To know that Mac wrote those songs, I mean, to me, everybody in the country needs to know that. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah, our and, son, mm -hmm. our kids didn't even realize that their dad wrote that song, and until we were at a uh, dinner one night, getting ready to go to a movie with some friends, and we were at a restaurant in a mall, Chinese restaurant, and overhead the music came on, and that song came on, and it was a huge hit, and. Noah, at the time, he was a young teenage boy, and he just looked at his dad, and he looked at us, he said, oh, I love this song. And we all kind of looked at him like, how could you not know your daddy didn't, your daddy wrote that? And I said, Noah, you know, your daddy wrote that. Daddy wrote that song. And he looked at his father, and the look of respect and awe and admiration, I think Max Park just grew five sizes that day. He was so happy that his teenage boy looked at him again with fresh eyes. It was, it was wonderful. Well, did did your kids actually go back and research Max history and realize what all of the songs he wrote that literally made people famous and household names? 
I think over as time went on, I think it was just something they grew up with. They didn't really understand the impact he had. And I think since his death, I think they are really recognizing. I, they appreciated him as, as he was as alive too. Um, and that is an older son, Scott, who definitely got to see it because he was young, watching Scotty grow. That was about him. And so Scott went on the road with him one, a couple times as a, you know, worked with his dad as a road, as a tour guy. And he just, you know, the kids, the, his boys all respect him very much for the music that he wrote. They understand that their father was an amazing gift to the world of songwriting. Well, what is and, and and he absolutely was, and to me still is. What is your most cherished memory of Mac? Oh, oh, that's a good question. Um, I have so many. Oh man, I'm having a hard time coming up with one. Um, okay, I'll tell one that I don't talk about very often. Um, Mac was newly sober and he had just come out of Betty Ford. He had been offered the role of Will Rogers in the Will Rogers Follies on Broadway um, several times before it went to Broadway and he turned it down. And thank God he did because he was in the, in the heights of his disease of alcoholism. And I knew that he wouldn't be able to do it. I think he did too. But anyways, it came back to him and he was offered it again. And four months to the day of his sobriety, they brought him in on a Wednesday matinee just to get his feet wet. They knew, everyone knew he was coming in to take over the role from Keith Carradine. And so if you ever saw the show, Will Rogers, the character makes his entrance um, above the stage from a, 40, from a rope. It's like a staircase, like his little platform rope coming down 40 feet off the stair of the stage coming down. No, no harness, by the way, just you hold on. And so Mac was up in the rafters getting ready to come down while the chorus girls were down there doing their opening number. And he looked down and he said to the man next to him, the grip, and he said, you know, I've never performed sober in my life. This will be my first time. And the guy looked at him and he said, I got your back, Mac. I'm a friend of Bill W., which is code speak for I'm an AAs too, as well. And Mac just looked at him and, and he thought to himself, there are, no, there are miracles every day, and this is one of them. And he came down, and I watched him do that show. And he learned that show in one month, and it was a really hard show. Lots of choreography, lots and lots of songs that he didn't write. It was one thing for him to perform his own songs, but to do others, people's songs. He's never done that before. Rope tricks in the beginning, which he turned into a monologue instead, because that was more him, like Will Rogers. But he did that show, and at the end of it, I was a puddle on the floor. I was sobbing. I mean, just sobbing. And my friends, some of the chorus girls and his co-star ended up being very dear friends of mine. And they all started crying because they see I, they could see I was crying. And Mac just winked. And then he did something I never expected. When he took his curtain call, he talked about his sobriety and said, if you're thinking that you need to go somewhere, go get an AA meeting. And he talked and every night. That was his thing. And I thought, what a brave man. What an, what an incredibly kind, loving man I'm married to. Well, so what, what was the differences? What were the main differences in Mac uh, before and after sobriety? There was nothing different about his songwriting. What it was is I got more of him. If I didn't talk to him and tell him things before the morning ended, I wasn't going to get him the rest of the day when he would come home from golf. I mean, he was pleasant. He was funny. He still was funny, but he wasn't really present towards the end. Wow. Now, you know, having a having a famous spouse uh, and you had alluded to the fact that, you know, like you would take your kids to Disneyland uh, and Mac didn't. Was there a back in the day? Was there a problem maintaining privacy? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, with the kids being very careful with them, making sure. But they, but I think we did a pretty good job because Dolly would come over to dinner and Dolly Parton would come over to dinner and she they called her Aunt Granny. And one day Cody came in the room and then Mac was doing one of her Christmas specials and it was on TV. And Cody looked up and he goes, why is daddy and Aunt Granny on TV? They didn't know. So I think we did a pretty good job. So, so was that the first time they realized that their father was, well, famous? I think it was seeping in at that point. They were trying to, they were figuring it out. But also Mac didn't perform as much. Once they were born, 
he stopped, he, he wanted to be home with the kids and, and he was, but he was also drinking more. So, but, uh, but, but he became sober. He became sober, actually I take it back. He became sober when Cody was an infant. Um, but he wanted, he said he was leaving the road, but after, but after he became sober, except for the Will Rogers Follies and occasional concerts here and there, he pretty much just was a stay at home dad and played golf and he, but he never stopped writing. He was writing all the time, every single day. Yeah. Mac songs, even today are, are timeless. I mean, I can see other artists recording some of his more famous songs. And I remember the one, um, I'm still trying to remember it again, uh, Baby Don't Get Hooked on Me. And I remember this story when that song first came out because there was a little bit of an uproar from the radio stations. Uh, and that was really at a time where he brings out this song that is very adult-like, not cutesy and sweet love songs, um, it was very adult in nature. Is there a backstory to that one? There is. It was actually not meant to be a real song. It was meant as a joke. What happened was he had gone down to Muscle Shoals to record another album, and Rick Hall was producing. And Rick came in, and they were sitting there, sitting around with the musicians. And he walks in, he goes, "Mac, y'all, you keep coming down here with all these syrupy ballads. You give away all your your hit songs, and you bring me these syrupy ballads. I need a song with a hook." You got to get me a song with a hook. Mac was a little bit peeved. I think he was like, whatever. And he said, well, I'll give you a song with a hook. So he went upstairs into Rick's office, sat down with a yellow legal pad. That's what he always wrote on. And he came down a little while later and, and wink, wink, nod, nod to all the musicians. He looks at Rick, he goes, Rick, I wrote you a song with a hook. And he sang the chorus, baby, you don't get hooked on me. I'll just use you and I'll set you free. And, and he got finished singing it with his guitar. And Rick said, that's a smash. Max said, Rick, it's a joke. And Rick goes, I don't care what it is, it's a smash. We're gonna record it right now. Go upstairs and finish the song. Go finish the uh, chorus, I mean, the uh, lyrics, the, uh, yeah, the verses. So he did, and they cut it the next day, and it went number one. It did go number one, and, I, and if I remember correctly, that was during a time when the feminist movement was kind of uh, raging across America, which I can understand why yeah, they probably got ticked off when that song came out. <laughs> yeah, but as, as Mac used to say, then Paul Anka came along with "You're Having My Baby" and took it took away the award reward, award from Ms. Magazine's Male Chauvinist Pig of the Year. So he was he was fine with that. <laughs> wow, that that's funny. In one year, you have Mac Davis and Paul Anka bringing these songs out, and uh, wow. It's really, kind of, it's really kind of funny, you know, just, especially with just the timing. But I really want to see today's artist dive into Mac's music catalog and start pulling out some of those amazing songs. Maybe some of the songs that a lot of people may not know. Maybe they were filler songs or B-sides because they're all great. And they all had this signature uh, Mac Davis about them. Yes, and I've got so many songs that have not been recorded. And uh, so, as I mentioned, he wasn't out, going out as often and record and performing. And a few years back, he was singing a song, and I walked in. I was listening and just leaned against the door jam, listening to the song. And I started to cry when he finished. And he goes, "Why are you crying?" I said, "Because I'm the only one that's ever going to get to hear that song." Because he wasn't putting them out anymore. So now I've got this treasure trove of songs that I intend to get out there, taking my time, going to find the right people, going to find the right producer, the right way to, to, to get them out with the right artists and, and make sure that I, that's my job. My job now is to celebrate his legacy every day and get his name out there so that he's not forgotten. So that people understand, because as you and I both know, when you look at records and you pull up that LP, and there's there's the picture of the company that's made the you know the whole record, and there's the name of the producer, and and, and the name of the song, and the name of the performer, and then in little tiny parentheses, you don't even get your full name. You get your first initial of your first name, with the period and your last name, and that's it. As the songwriter, the songwriter gets the least amount of money, the least uh, appreciation for what they've created, and the least celebration. 
So many people today still think that if they hear a, a performer singing, they assume the performer wrote the song. And that's not always true. So that's, that's my role now in Max, in Max life and in in his legacy. The love of my life is to go out there and make sure people understand what songwriters do and what they need to do and what and why it all begins with a song. We fall in love to songs. We, we celebrate with songs. We grieve our, lo our lost loved ones with song. We it's greet our baby world with nursery rhymes and songs. It all begins with a songwriter. We gotta, we gotta appreciate the songwriters. We do, and I, I'm in 100% agreement with you because, you know, back in the day with, you know, of course, vinyl has made this huge comeback. And with vinyl, when there was CDs, even cassettes, you could pull out the cover and you could read all of the notes. You could read who the songwriters were, who the musicians were on every song. And you're right, even today, most of the people singing these songs that we hear, they're not the songwriters. And... Yeah. You know, back in the day, um, I remember uh, Radney Foster, another big Nashville songwriter, and he would say, nothing like mailbox money. But there's not a whole lot of mailbox money when it comes to streaming. No, there isn't. There isn't. That's why I've, I've created a foundation uh, with the, under the auspices and the kindness and the beauty of this wonderful uh, community foundation in Middle, uh, Middle Tennessee called the Song Painter Fund. And it's a very broad definition of what Song Painter Fund will do, but it's all about celebrating the art and craft of songwriting and songwriters. You know, uh, so what do you plan on, you know, so um, so this this initiative is based on really what? Uh, encouraging song songwriters and songwriting and their ability to put things together. Uh, funding, all those things. I don't know how it's going to go, and we kept it. We kept it very broad for that reason. We don't want to be penned in. We want to make sure that we can achieve what we need to do to honor Max's legacy as a songwriter. If you go to visit his grave in uh, Lubbock, Texas, you'll see on his tombstone it says his name, and then underneath it, it just says songwriter, and then the dates of his birth and death. That's it, because that's what he truly was. Someone asked him one time. What do you consider yourself, an actor, a songwriter, a singer, performer? What are you? He goes, I'm a songwriter. And, and you know, when he passed away so suddenly, when we lost him so suddenly, I stayed up with him that night in the hospital, and I just held his hand all night long and talked to him. And I said to him, what do I do now? What do I do? How do I, how do I go through this? What do, what, what do I do? And then it hit me. He wrote about it in his song in Texas in my river mirror. He wrote it in the last verse. And when I die, you can bury me in Lubbock, Texas, in my jeans. And that's what I did. Took him home in his blue jeans with his cowboy hat on and in a plain, simple wooden casket. And when we arrived, it was such an incredible joy to see these people lining the streets as we got closer and closer to the cemetery. I mean, thousands of people lining the streets, holding up his album, singing his songs, hats over their hearts, um, women crying. Children on top of the cars on their parents' shoulders, singing this song, I Believe in Music, Texas in My Rearview Mirror. It was so beautiful. And I'm so grateful that his son Scott and Scott's daughter, Grand and Max's granddaughter, Lindsay, and our sons Noah and Cody and all their wives, that they got to see this, that they got to understand the impact their father and grandfather had as a songwriter. And it just touched my soul. You know, Max's legacy is huge max legacy needs to be this this shining light because yeah. you know i've talked to so many recording artists especially from nashville and we would get on the conversation about songwriting and songwriters and max name comes up in every conversation and like you said you know he wanted to be known as a songwriter and he did that's what people, you know, especially people in the music industry, they remember the Mac Davis, the songwriter, more than anything. You know, as for people like me who are who, who's a fan, yeah, I remember his songs. I remember him singing. I remember his variety show. Uh, him being in uh, North Dallas Forty with Nick Nolte and and some of the the other films. But it his legacy is really being one of the most prolific 
songwriters in the history of music. I couldn't agree with you more, and I want people to know that. That's my goal. And in fact, I'll tell a story. I don't normally tell this to a lot of people, but if this is one of the first times I'm telling it publicly, if not the first time. Um, when we lost, when we knew that Mac was going to leave us, I was able to uh, gather his sons, his uh, Noah and Cody and his son Scott, they came and we were at his bedside um, when, after they took the ventilator off and uh, we were saying goodbye to him and one of the nurses had placed her phone at the top of his pillow next to his head and it was playing Mac Davis songs. And you know, it's a random shuffle, so you don't know what's going to play. And I'm sitting there going, oh, don't, don't take your last breath to heart to be humble. No, 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 no. That's not the, that's not the song. Because Mac used to joke about, I would have been known for hard to be humble and not in the ghetto or, or you know, in memory or whatever. And so true to Mac Davis, he even left this earth on his own terms under the most perfect song that he ever wrote. And it's a lesser known song called In the Eyes of My People. And when it came on, the last verse, says, Lord, let me be someone special in the eyes of the people who love me. The only thing I'll ever ask of life is just to die, knowing my people were proud of me. Lord, let me die, knowing my loved ones were proud of me. And that's when he took his last breath and left this world. Mm, my goodness, yeah. The end. yeah. I was, when I, when, I, when I first heard that Mac had passed, um, you know, it was, I think it was already a bit in the media that he was having heart surgery. Uh, but I was I was absolutely shocked. I mean, were there any signs prior to surgery that there may have been something wrong? Yes, there were. It was um, the last few years we knew that he was in and out of AFib, atrial fibrillation. And as I mentioned, I'm a nurse. So at the beginning of the pandemic in March of 20, I said, we were talking and I said, you know, we should just, we were in Los Angeles at the time. I said, let's go back. We built a house in, in uh, Tennessee outside of Nashville. And I said, honey, let's, let's go home. Let's take our dog robot. Let's just go back home and just hunker down during this pandemic. Cause this isn't going to go away. This is going to be for a while. We got to get through this and we're going to have to do it safely. And I wanted to protect him because I was worried about him. So we got home, we flew home and we got here and then, we were spending more time together, obviously, because he wasn't going out and playing golf. I wasn't leaving the house very much. And we were in, we were together a lot. And so I started to notice things. And I didn't like what I was seeing. Lots of sleeping and things like that, falling asleep during the day. So I said to him one day, I said, if you don't call your doctor in two weeks, I'm going to make an appointment for you because I'm concerned by what I'm seeing. Well, he didn't call, so I did. And the night before, I told him we had an appointment the next morning. He was not very happy with me. In fact, he was a little bit mad so i'm driving out to the cardiologist out in hendersonville he was grumbling 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 but then we met him and he really liked this cardiologist and he, he was given a monitor we knew something was wrong the cardiologist said yeah there's something going on you're right to come in here we're going to run we're going to run this monitor for two weeks we're going to get all the information but in the meantime you're going to come back in two weeks and we're going to do some testing we're going to do a, you know a cardiogram and all that stuff and we're just going to find out what's going on so that's what we did. And the cardiologist even called me the night before. He says, thank God we're going in because I don't like the way things are looking on the strip that I'm getting. I said, okay. So we went in the next day and he had an angiogram. And while Matt was still in recovery, the cardiologist came in and sat across the room from me and we both took our masks off. And he said, Lisa, it's as bad as it can get. He's one beat, heartbeat away from death. He goes, we need to get him into surgery as soon as possible. And I said, well, let's do it. So. Uh, we did. So we, he transferred by ambulance to the hospital, went back into Nashville, and um, the next morning at 7 a.m., he had open-heart surgery, and at 9.45, they called me, and they said, meet the surgeon. He's coming. Mac is, they're closing right now. Meet him in this room, my ICU, and he'll come and talk to you and tell you what happened. So, okay, so called our kids, called all three boys, tell them dad's out of surgery, everything's going good. You know, two and a half hour surgery, that's really good surgery. Let's, I think he's going to be okay. Let's do this. And I walked there and I just sat, sat, and sat. And finally, about 45 minutes later, sitting by myself, because it's COVID, no one can be around each other. I was in that waiting room alone as well. Um, the uh, nurse came bustling in and she said, are you Mrs. Davis? I said, yes, I am. She said, there's been a, there's been a complication. We've had to go back in to the operating room. And I said, what kind of complication? 
she said that his aorta had dissected. And I looked at her and I said, oh, I'm a nurse and I know what that means. And she just put her head down and said, I'm so sorry. And I was walking out from there. I sat there for a long time because my legs wouldn't move. And then I stood up and I was praying and asking God, please don't take him. And I was walking down the hallway, kind of holding onto the wall. And I was going to call her kids. Now I had to tell them that things weren't going so good. And of all people, Dolly called to see how it was going. And I told her, she goes, oh, Lisa, he ain't going to die. He's too hateful. He's too ornery. <laughs> okay. She's the only person that could talk to me that way at that moment. But it was a long day, seven and a half hours more of surgery. And the kids were calling and, you know, I'm texting. I had to go borrow someone's cord from the nursing station because I didn't, I was running out of battery. And anyways, he came through, he, he survived, they, he came out. But of course I was worried now that he'd been on bypass so long. I was so worried about brain damage and cognitive deficit, knowing how long he was on that heart lung uh, machine. Anyways, when I got in the room, he was hysterical. He was out of his mind because he was on medication and drugs and things, but he knew who I was and he talked about my blue eyes. And um, I just told him how much I loved him. And as I walked out the door, um, our son, our oldest son, uh, Noah called me and he says, mama, where are you? I said, I'm just leaving the hospital. I'll call you from the car. And he goes, mama, I'm here. I said, what do you mean you're here? Because I had told all three boys, don't come, don't come. Stay where you are. There's nothing you can do. It's COVID. You can't be with me and him. I'm alone in the waiting room and you can't even be with me. You, you're not allowed. So he says, mama, I'm here. I said, what do you mean? He goes, I just landed in Nashville. So he took it upon himself to come in and he met me, he got to our house at seven minutes after I arrived. And I feel badly that, that Cody and, and Scott didn't get to experience what Noah got because we had Saturday and Sunday with Mac. And on Sunday, it was, they were good days. And on Sunday, he was able to walk the halls and we, we transferred down to a coronary care unit. We said goodnight at seven o'clock. And I said, I'll see you in the morning, honey. I'm gonna take Noah to the airport and I'll come with your coffee and your books and your glasses and we'll walk the halls and we'll just be bored all day long. And it's gonna be wonderful. And I dropped Noah off the next morning, dropped him off at the airport. And he asked me if his, if his dad really was out of the woods. And I promised him he was, the worst was over. It's gonna be okay. And then on the way to the hospital, I looked down, I had a missed call and it was ICU telling me to come that he had coded during the night. And he was back in ICU and I called Noah, told him to turn around, come back, come back, come back. And I ran in. And when I got to his bedside, I knew, I knew he was gone. And the doc, there was a, a lot of people in that room at that moment. And the doctor looked at me, they knew I was a nurse. And he said, Lisa, Lisa, we ran the perfect code. And I said, oh, with an imperfect outcome. This is not Mac. And he said, oh, you gotta believe in miracles. You gotta believe in miracles. I said, the miracle is that Mac Davis ever was. This isn't Mac. I knew he was gone. And we had to wait a little while, but on, that was on Monday. And on Tuesday night, we said goodbye. So mm. it was hard to say goodbye. We, missed, we lost him so quickly. Yeah, I mean, and because I, it was completely unexpected. Totally, totally, utterly unexpected. But I found my birthday cards. About a month and a half later was my birthday. And one, and when I, before my birthday, I was cleaning out I, I had to clean out his bathroom and I found in his drawer, there were my cards all hidden, all my birthday cards. So that was a nice surprise. So those are the things that he left me surprises just like that after he left me after us. Well, Max sounds like one of the most amazing men. And I know that he uh, was to you and, you know, in reflecting on Max vast uh, disc, uh, discography. Uh, is there a song or an album that stands out to you as, uh, well, encapsulating his spirit or is it, or was it the, the one song that you had on his pillow? Oh, well, you know, every single song was so special. It'd be hard for me. It would be hard pressed for me to pick an album or whatever, but I would say to you, I would tell you what his favorite songs were. He felt that, um, one of the best songs he ever wrote was Texas in my rearview mirror. And it really is a beautiful song. Of course, in the ghetto was a very important song to him. He wrote that from his own experience growing up, seeing what he saw, but he wrote a song just before he passed away with Alan Chamlin. And I intend to get that song out. I do believe that that song is a song of the year at the time of Mac's death. He felt it was the best song he ever wrote. And 
at the time of his death, we were trying to, he was trying to figure out who to get it to, to sing and get it, play, get it out there. And I intend, if I do nothing more in the next couple of years, I'm going to get that song out and I'm going to do my best to make sure it's received so well that it does receive the accolades it deserves because it's an amazing song and it's all about where songs come from. So. Well, I, I know that you are going to get that done. And, you know, there's been so many artists who have spoken about Mac's influence on their work. Uh, are there any particular tributes or covers that have been, that literally have touched you personally? Well, anytime anyone of my, like when, when shortly after Mac's death, Darius Rucker and, and Reba sang at the CMAs, they sang In the Ghetto together as a duet. In, at the height of COVID, so they had no audience other than, and everyone had masks on, and it was really hard for them to do that show. I know because people told me all about it, but they did it, and that was just a, that literally was just a few weeks after he died, about a month after he died, and um, that was hard. They did such a good job. That was a beautiful tribute. So, and of course, Dolly, Dolly sings tributes to him all the time. They wrote some songs together. Um, I don't know, they're still out there. They're still to come. There's still many to come, I think. And I plan, to, I plan to hopefully get some people to put a tribute album together. He also wrote, ironically, the last song he wrote, again, Mac Davis style, was He Lived Until He Died. Who does that? Who writes that as their last song? And he did. <laughs> you know, that, boy, so many things could be said about that. Um, yeah, the verse, and the I don't want to call, I don't want to call it an omen. But, yeah. you know, the Lord knows things that we'll never know or understand. But it, it was almost like, you know, Mac, you know, tying a bow at the end, so to speak, and just basically letting the world know he is a songwriter. And for you, I mean, are there any unreleased projects or songs of Mac's that uh, we can all look forward to in the future? Yes, just stay tuned, as they say. <laughs> Couldn't help myself on that one, sorry. <laughs> hey, yes. that, that's all right. I can't wait. Hopefully they're going to be put on vinyl and uh, I guess create oh, the Mac Davis God. catalog. Yes. yes, 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 absolutely. Yeah, and uh, and, and so where can everyone go to uh, for the, the Song Painter Fund? Well, if you go, we've created his new website. It's up and running, MacDavis.com. And on there, you'll see about the Songwriters uh, Fund there. You can click on that and read about it. Um, we're just getting going. We're just getting on. It took me a little bit to get my heart and soul uh, together because I was crying a whole lot after he passed away. But um, I, I really miss, I still miss him. But I've gotten the most amazing people around me who love him as, as much as I love Mac and, his, and are as dedicated to honoring his legacy as I am. And I'm truly blessed with the most, most beautiful souls that love me and love my husband and love my family. So I'm very, very blessed, but most of all, they respect him. And that's most of all what's important to me. That's it. And ladies and gentlemen, if you are an up and coming songwriter, maybe you've been a songwriter for many, many years, you need to really study Mac Davis's music collection, the list of his songs, sit there and listen. We are talking about a man who is the master songwriter. I mean, sure he sang, sure he acted, but Mac Davis, the songwriter, that's all you need to know. But what you need to do is open up your ears and your heart and listen to the songs. Listen to his hooks, listen to the poetry, and you will learn so much to become a better songwriter just by studying Mac songs and sitting down and taking the time to truly listen because we need those types of songs to come back to our own ears, our own hearts, because music makes memories, and Mac Davis created millions of memories for people across the globe with his incredible songwriting. Yes, and, he did. Uh, he did. And ladies and gentlemen, uh, like, he, like I said, for all of you fans out there, it is time to reach back into the musical archives and listen to all of Mac Davis's songs, as well as the songs that brought so many other artists great fame and recognition. Again, people like Elvis and Bruno Mars and Avicii and 
the list goes on and on. And hopefully that there will be more of Mac Davis's songs hitting the airwaves and just across every platform we can think of because there's so much more out there that people can hear and learn. And Lisa, I want to thank you so much for sharing his incredible legacy with us today. Well, it's an honor and a pleasure. Honestly, the pleasure was mine because talking about Mac is my favorite thing to do. <laughs> and uh, well, yeah. I, and I don't blame you because uh, that, I mean, again, you know, it's been an absolute pleasure for me. It's been an absolute honor to have you come and, and share these amazing stories about Mac. And ladies and gentlemen, you got to realize his musical legacy covered almost six decades. And also too, she's created the song painter. And if, if you go back, that's actually the name of one of his albums, uh, yes. song painter and the Mac Davis fund for the art of songwriting. This was established in 2023 to promote the belief in music and where songs come from. The universal language of songwriting and related forms of art, all in the celebration of the one and the only Mac Davis. So go to MacDavis.com. And uh, hey, I want to thank all of you for watching and listening, everyone. I'm, I'm trying not to get choked up here because <laughs> Mac is the man. And, uh, and so we're going to leave with the famous words of Mac Davis, stop and smell the roses along the way. And don't be in such a hurry because there is more to life than work and worry. I'll see you next time.